Welcome to Series 3 of Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'm chatting to artistic directors Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, looking back at four decades of their productions all across the world. Together, we'll take a look at what these plays have to tell us about the messy business of being human. This week's play is Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. And before we get started with Declan and Nick, here's a quick synopsis to refresh your memory. Twins Viola and Sebastian are shipwrecked off the land of Illyria. They crawl to shore, each thinking that the other is dead. Viola disguises herself as a boy called Cesario and enters the court of the Duke Orsino. Orsino is desperately in love with another Illyrian, Olivia, who rejects his advances. Orsino sends Viola, disguised as Cesario, to woo Olivia on his behalf. Olivia falls in love with this intriguing stranger. Viola, meanwhile, is falling in love with Orsino. Sebastian arrives with his companion Antonio. Olivia mistakes Sebastian for Cesario and they end up getting married. Olivia's household is full of a cast of characters caught up in their own messy web of desires. Her drunk uncle, Sir Toby, is exploiting his friend, Andrew Aguecheek, with the promise that he can arrange for him to marry Olivia. Sir Toby is in a relationship with Olivia's maid, Maria, and together they decide to torment the pompous butler, Malvolio, who is also in love with Olivia. They trick him into thinking that Olivia secretly loves him back, engineering her public rejection of him and imprisoning him as a madman. Meanwhile, the identical-looking twins continue to cause havoc, unaware that the other is alive. And through it all wanders Feste, the travelling fool, entertaining the tormented lovers with his songs and dabbling in their plots. In the final scene, all is revealed. The twins finally end up face to face and all the confused identities are untangled. Olivia ends up together with Sebastian and Viola with Orsino. And now over to Declan and Nick. So, hello Declan and Nick. Hello Lucy. So, we're sat here today very comfortably with Twelfth Night, a cup of tea and a piece of fruitcake, which is an excellent combination. And Twelfth Night is another one of those plays which you two have worked on repeatedly over the years. So, you've uh, did a production in 1986, early on in the company's history in English, and then in 2003 with a Russian production. Also, fair enough, also with um, arts educational drama students in about 1981. And Declan played Orsino for the National Student Theatre Company yes. in Theatre Space, which is where Cheek by Jowl formed first for Tispitishi Zahor in 1980. Good grief. So Twelfth Night really is in the sort of groundwater of Cheek by Jowl then? Yeah, it well, is. Well, then given that it's a production that you have performed in and directed and designed so many times over the years what is it about Twelfth Night that fascinates you now last week we were talking about when you're fascinated by plays it's often there's something in it that troubles or haunts you that you find you can't solve or don't have solutions to so what is it about Twelfth Night that haunts you well I think like all Shakespeare's plays it's about love and consequently it's about loss and it's also about self-deception um, I think primarily one of the things that Twelfth Night is about is how the greatest gift that we have is not, as St Paul says, love. 
the greatest gift that we have is our capacity to pay attention. Attention is the great gift. And attention is our capacity to be with another human being and to encounter them and to be encountered back because that opens a channel down which love can pass. So when you say attention, do you mean our capacity to be able to see the other person, understand that they're different from us, can surprise us, that they're their own individual and allowing them to be that and to see that? Yes, exactly. Or well, even some way, even something towards that. I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about perfections here, but love is not to do with how you feel. Love is how you treat other people. It's it's in the channel between you and the other person. You know, the important thing is that is that you see the other person and and make sure that you are looking after them and treating them kindly. Romeo and Juliet have full of love for each other. But if you look at it carefully, they actually destroy each other. So that that feeling of in love, which is a wonderful feeling, which we have to kickstart our affairs, um, that has to wean. That feeling has to wean from being sympathetic to empathic, and we have to understand the other person's different, and we have to be attentive to the thing that's outside us. Otherwise, it is actually toxic. If by love people mean not only the feeling, but the way that we treat other people as well, then I'm fine with that. But unfortunately... Sometimes people talk about love as being just the feeling. So Orsino, at the start of Twelfth Night, is wildly in love with Olivia, but you realise very soon that he's in love with the idea of love, and also the idea of him as a sort of ghastly martyr. But he sees himself as being the centre of all of this. It's, it's, it's the danger of sort of being a martyr or of, of self-sacrifice, that it can become all about you. I mean, the important thing is to treat the other person as an equal and let your love travel down that channel. And it seems that this is a common theme all the way through Twelfth Night, that people fall head over heels in love with someone without paying attention to them. But whoever fell in love with someone knowing who they are, you don't (laughs) fall in love with someone knowing who they are. That's a lifetime's work. And even then, of course, at the end of your life, you still don't know quite who they are. (laughs) You fall in love completely irrationally and the and it's the glorious thing at the heart of this play it's a bunch of people falling in love totally irrationally like orsino falls in love with viola dressed as cesario and isn't paying enough attention to realize who she really is and similarly you know olivia falls in love with who she thinks is cesario confuses them with sebastian and gets married to the wrong sibling because she can't actually tell the difference between the two humans in front of her because she's not paying attention and then having to wake up to the fact that the person they've fallen in love with is not the quite the person they thought that they were and that therefore they themselves are not quite the person that they thought that they were it takes you on a whole journey of what it is to not just fall in love but develop that love with someone and she can't pay attention and orsino can't pay attention because their attention has been strangled by self-obsession now it is great to pay attention to yourself, to pay attention to yourself, to understand yourself, to see what you're doing. That's just great. Self-obsession is a defense against paying attention to yourself and to other people. And they become self-obsessed. It's like they've doctored their image on Facebook so much, they actually believe that's what they look like. They create an image of themselves to themselves and and they get lost in it. And they they can't make connections with other people. And what's glorious at the end of Twelfth Night is that how weird these marriages are that Shakespeare proposes. It's, at least it's a step in the right direction. At least they can manage to hold another human being's hand 
And at the beginning, they were far too isolated to make any any real connection with anybody else. Shakespeare's not sentimental enough to tell us they lived happily ever after. I don't know what'll happen with Viola's Duchess of Illyria and um, Mariah Lady Belch. I mean, it'll be so very weird. <laughs> and <laughs> in our version, Nick and me, we always pair off Festy with Antonio because we cannot bear to see um, another homosexual character called Antonio sent off to the wilderness at the end, as happens in The Merchant of Venice as well. So we've always paired off um, Antonio and, and Antonio and Festi at the end. So there, there'll be another couple around the corner that have to be dealt with in some way. So only Malvolio and Andrew Agicic are left alone at the end of the yes, play? Yes, I don't see that happening somehow. <laughs> yes, now that would be a really unusual wedding. I think so. <laughs> really, it's like episode one of a... 10 series TV thing. I mean, what those marriages are going to be like, God, God alone knows. But, um, but there's hope, there's something, there's more than there was at the beginning. It's what I find so funny about the first speech where Orsino starts, if music be the food of love, play on, which is often held up as this amazing piece of love poetry, but it's actually a terrible piece no, of I, love poetry. I always imagine the actor after the, would, you know, they'd have read a read-through, they'd have done the first two or three lines, and they'd be saying, you can't really expect to be saying this, can you? And Shakespeare's saying, no, no, everyone will realise it's a joke. And um, no, we don't. And that's, um, I think, one of the funny things about poor old Shakespeare, that he often writes things in these hyperinflated ways so that we will obviously see the irony. And I fear we don't. So we shouldn't leave our common sense at the door. Orsino's first speech is overblown and self-obsessed and frankly quite a bad piece of poetry. It's got a terrible couplet at the end of it. Yes, but away before me to sweet beds of flowers, love thoughts lie rich when canopied in bowers. It's horrible on purpose. It should give us a very strong handle on Orsino. However, he still shouldn't feel superior to Orsino, because I'm sure I've had those feelings, particularly when I was younger. So it's not like we're above it. We're not, we're not above these human tropes. We can all slide into them terribly easily. Orsino talks about his love as, is, as if his love is an inner ownable state, whereas in fact our love is something that's in a process between us um, and other people. When the other person's different from you, you can pay attention to them. Through the cha that channel, love can pass. But part of the action, surely, of the play is, yes, he starts off completely self-obsessed, but then at the end, there's an inversion, or, and that's what's great about the play, is that he realises something about himself that is more truthful, and he basically falls in love with the right person. Absolutely. And what about you, Nick? What haunts you or fascinates you about Twelfth Night? Um, well, I, I love the play because of, of the space it's in, really, is the house the system that's portrayed, all, all these relationships which are incredibly complex and but fascinating, and everybody has a huge role to play. They're all very powerful characters. And they're in this very simple space, which is Olivia's house, essentially, because Orsino's palace doesn't really feature very much. But Olivia's house is epic in that we visit all the parts of it, her her room, her drawing room, the kitchen downstairs, um, the box tree in the garden outside, the orchard. So we follow. We we discover this wonderful house with these weird people in. It's epic and fascinating at the same time. When we say weird, we don't mean weird like them. We mean weird like us. I mean weird like me. 
I don't think really humans do normal. It's the weirdness with which we connect with each other. The house I find really interesting, Olivia's house, because it, you think you want to be there. It's, it's like often the house in a Chekhov play. You think this is a really lovely place to be. Um, then when you start to think a little bit more closely about the space and the predicament that it represents and exactly what's happening in the kitchen and what's up happening upstairs and in the garden, the fun, fun, fun starts to disappear and you think this is really a dangerous place. And what was brilliant about your set design for the Russian production was that it was essentially two chairs and a table in a huge, like, football field-sized space. I mean, it felt massive. You could definitely play a game of five-a-side on it. And that felt like it revealed all these systems of interactions because we could see these groups of people moving around, people being isolated out of the groups. It turned the human bodies into almost like a diagram of the system as we saw them moving around the space. And I loved that about the show. And in very simple terms, the play is wonderful. Like As You Like It, it progresses from something quite dark into the light. And Twelfth Night progresses from this house of mourning with Malvolio in control and Olivia sort of under clamps and waiting to um, escape, really, into, in the second half, we're, f- we're full of light and everybody has fallen in love, possibly with the wrong reasons or the wrong people, but they are in love. And that seems to be a really important theme all the way through the play and one that you really put your finger on in your staging of it, which is to do with the way that love is not just about love, it's about the flip side, it's about the loss and the pain nobody falls in love in Twelfth Night without harming someone else profoundly. That's part of human politics, that there's no inclusion without exclusion. Um, Yes, there's a tremendous amount of pain in Twelfth Night when people get rejected in love. And Orsino astonishingly talks about um, the attention that he's not paid by Olivia. And he always comes to kill. He threatens murder, actually, basically because she's not paying him attention. And we sort of laugh at that, but... Actually, it's very, very dangerous not paying people attention. Everybody needs their portion of attention. Well, I think there's an incredible word in that speech that you're referring to. Orsino threatens to kill Cesario Viola because he thinks that Olivia has married them. The word he uses, he says, your non-regardance of me, right? That is what has caused me massive pain. It seems to feed into this idea of attention. He says, you are not paying me attention and that makes me feel invisible. And his response is violent. Yes, words like non-regardance, like ignoring me. The the word is so boring, but the feelings it incurs are so violent. So there's this complete mismatch between the word and, and what's being conveyed. And Shakespeare's brilliant for that. And he understands that very often the most violent things, um, and, and we need to really think about these um, these absent things for which no word is there. Well, this idea of this painful non-regardance seemed particularly obvious in the way that you put Malvolio on stage. So the way you introduced us to Malvolio is that he was trying to make this kind of complicit agreement with the audience. He kept on turning around to them and trying to get them on his side and trying to have a friend in us whilst adoring Olivia and getting no attention back from her. And then this horrible thing happens to him where he gets tricked and tortured by other members of the household. And when you had him released and coming to Olivia to complain about what had happened, you had her completely distracted by something else. He couldn't even really hold her attention to explain how traumatised he was. 
And then in the final scene where there was this massive party and everybody was partnered off and, and enjoying dancing and music, you had him moving through the crowd with a kind of fixed butler's smile, handing out champagne, completely alone in this triumph of love. And then suddenly they froze. There was a spotlight on him. He turned around and you gave him the last line of the play. And he said to the audience, I will be revenged upon the whole pack of you. And after this huge love fest and this joyous party, you reminded us, oh no, somebody was suffering from having all attention removed from him and the result is ugly and violent and it's going to erupt. Yes, we changed the position of that line. It happens earlier in the scene, but we wanted it to be the last line of the play. Very often, Malvolio has a, a sentimental function in the play, which is to reassure the audience because he's the nasty killjoy that we all hate in unison. And so we all love the shenanigans that are going on in the house. But life isn't really as simple as that. And Shakespeare doesn't think life is as simple as that. So it's important for us that we take Malvolio very seriously, that rather than being an, an old buffoon who's clearly got no hope in hell of ever getting on with Olivia, we cast somebody who is very, very strong, handsome guy that would, would be a very um, plausible partner for Olivia. And and we had him fall seriously, seriously, tearfully in love with Olivia. He was deeply in love with her. And he was so grateful to her for having um, overlooked his lowly origins and so on. So to a certain degree, we felt sorry for him. And then we um, staged the party at the end so that he was excluded, but he was on the fourth stage in the dark. And we could feel this terrible sense of someone who's excluded from life's feast. This kind of exclusion, this kind of non-regardance, leads to terrible rage and can have incredibly violent outcomes. And Malvolio is described specifically in the play as a Puritan. The Puritans, of course, were rejected. Some got on the Mayflower, some stayed, uh, overthrew Parliament, um, and closed down all the theatres. And England, Ireland, and Scotland were thrown into a violent civil war. Climbing down the arts is a feature of all revolutionary governments, and Cromwell was to Shakespeare's world of what Stalin was to Chekhov's. So actually, it's very important line to remember that he was revenged on the whole pack of us sitting in the theatre. But the exclusion of Malvolio is perfectly justified. I mean, because he's a nightmare. He actually tries to throw Toby out. I think I'd throw Toby out. Would you want him living in the next door room? I, I, I don't think so. He'd be a nightmare. I mean, you know, if you were to choose between Toby and Malvolio, I tend to vote for Toby, but he's not a great choice either, you know. We did one quite shocking thing in the, in the kitchen scene when Toby's drinking their laughing festi and achy cheek and Mariah would come in and she would take the booze away. And in the middle of this laughing, happy, cosy scene, uh, Toby would give her a huge slap across the face and it immediately froze the audience. Um, I think that was important because personally I, I find the expression lovable drunk a bit of an oxymoron. But also I think it's very Shakespearean, these sudden shifts in tone, and that you realise there is a real world, that there is danger here, and that behind the laughter there is unease. Uh, and that was very important, I think. So, Nick, what do you think is the most difficult thing about putting Twelfth Night on stage? Um, well, I think that if I was directing it, I'd find the most difficult thing would be the final act, which when you have 14 characters, all of whom have very complex journeys to make and 
culminating in all sorts of revelations and complexities that is complicated I mean and I personally wouldn't like to me to direct it designing it is one thing um, shaping it into something that makes sense is another the thing that's so hard about that long scene is watching who's doing the watching there's so many characters who aren't speaking for a long time in that scene like Antonio who has to watch his beloved Sebastian sort of reveal himself as this kind of fickle version he has to sort of watch the universe change in front of his eyes, but we also need to be able to see him seeing it. That must be so difficult to manage. And not seeing it at a certain point and avoiding seeing it at up to the point when he has to see it, as it were. So it's complicated. And watching Andrew Aguecheek seeing both Toby and Maria paired off and Olivia paired off and realising that he is completely unloved at the end of the play. Yes, of course, what happens at the end of Twelfth Night is devastating for Andrew Aguecheek, and that's why it's important that we see him. So the stage has to be organised in such a way that you see the effect in his eyes. Just because people have no lines doesn't mean to say they're not important. So the important thing for me about the title uh, Twelfth Night is it refers to the Feast of the Epiphany, the 6th of January, which is the night that the Magi realised that the baby was in fact God. So the Magi realised something that had been true all along. Something that was hidden is now manifest. It's a revelation. So in, at the end of Twelfth Night, things are revealed to people. They recognise, finally, something that was in front of them, but they didn't know what it was. So many of the characters on stage, all the characters on stage, have an epiphanic revelation about the world and about themselves, and everything is going to be different from now on. So what's happening is important, but what's important is who is seeing what is happening and the effect that it has on them. The main thing that happens in the scene, it's not so much Viola transforming into her real state as a woman, it's everybody seeing that happening. So the centre of the stage has to be the eyes of the people watching on. Very often we have to look after the characters with nothing to say because it's the effect on them that matters most. In other words, it's their presence there that is pivotal. If not enough care is taken, the stage will freeze into an inert semicircle. So through movement, we can make sure that that doesn't happen and that we can see the right eyes at the right time. Really, if it doesn't live in movement, it doesn't live at all. If we don't see it through movement, we don't see it at all. One of my favourite things about that last scene, because the stage was so wide open and you could see these groups of people moving around, that scene starts with sort of little fractured subgroups of alliances, of you know, like Toby and Maria and Orsino and and uh, Viola Cesario, that we see sort of bouncing off each other. And then you did this kind of amazing thing, which is as the world became more and more difficult to understand, you had all the Illyrians starting to create a panicked group, like very confused and upset penguins who were literally just trying to hold on to each other and feel kind of anchored in the universe as the world fell apart. And that was both extremely funny to watch, but also really moving. Yes, they're terrified, of course, because they see two of the same things. And Sasha Vaklistov's idea is brilliant. He's pushed Antonio out. <laughs> he pushed somebody else out to sort out the problem, you know, because he was, he was too scared to do it himself. And Nick, what, what brought you the greatest joy to design in this show? Like most successful bits of design as far as I'm concerned it tends to be accidental because we had four black drapes for Olivia's household and that happened to work extremely well for the box trees so each of the characters who were watching Malvolio could be hiding behind each of the drapes and could reveal themselves at opportune moments and sometimes they got left out or could cross from one drape to another there was a lot of potential comic business there and Andrew Aguecheek had a particularly good moment where he got 
they all had to kind of swap around to the other side of the drape as Malvolio kind of went upstage and then he forgot to go back around again. Exactly. And what about you, Declan? What was your favourite thing to stage? When Festy came on, he to sing to the Duke, he used to do a little warm-up before he'd sing his song and he'd cross himself and have a pray and he'd stand up and he'd sing his song for Orsino. And afterwards, Orsino would give him a bunch of flowers, which is very Russian, you know, you give a bunch of flowers to the diva and he'd sort of do a humble bow and he'd leap off as if he was at the Bolshoi. I mean, I think it's the wonderful thing about Feste is just like everybody else in the play, he's got something to win and lose. He desperately wants to get into the household and be accepted back into Olivia's home. You know, he needs his own kind of love and affection. But more than the other characters he has the self-awareness to be alone and to step outside and look at what they're doing and point out to them how much they are unself-aware about what's going on. He turns to Orsino and he says, I'll have a man like you put to sea because you're so changeable and you know yourself so slenderly. Yes, he says, your mind is a very opal. And it's often the case in Shakespeare when the overlooked people bring, see things much more clearly and bring the news and the information to the so-called knowledgeable aristocrats. It's the same situation as in Much Ado when Dogbury and Verges bring um, information about what's been going on. And in The Winter's Tale, it's the overlooked people like um, the old and young shepherd who bring crucial information so it's very important not to ignore um, the characters with very few lines. Well, exactly. And that's the wonderful thing about Twelfth Night. The smallest characters are living the most epic struggles in this play. Like, There's a moment when one of Orsino's attendants turns around yes. to Viola and basically says, like, back off. It's so clear that, that she's becoming his new favourite and that this person is being supplanted. But that's so true and it's so painful. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's the new guy who comes in who starts to get the promotion within a day, two days. It's frightening for those old people like Curio who are, who'd served um, Orsino well for so long. And again, that thing about painful love, that as soon as Orsino starts favouring Viola, Curio is out oh, in the yeah. cold. There's, there's no love without inflicting pain on someone else in this play. But when you say in this play, welcome to life, this is how life is. And that heartbreaking line when A.U. Sheik and Toby Belch hear Feste sing a very moving song and then Andrew says, I was loved once too. You realise that he is in the middle of his own epic and he's silly and a fool and everybody makes fun of him and you think he's sort of frivolous, but actually he's a man who feels deeply and is being ignored. And what he says when he says I was adored once too is that he it's what Shakespeare doesn't say. It's what the photographer leaves out of the photograph. It's the words Shakespeare doesn't use. And there was no producer there with a red back parrot saying, develop this idea. What does that this mean? I was adored once too. The audience can figure it out. And because we don't know what this tragic loss in A.Q. Cheek's life is, we can still imagine it because we can imagine it like our like our own, the, the losses that we've all experienced and, and how we sort of go on. So the empty spaces in Shakespeare are really just a void into which you step with your own imagination and your feelings. It makes you part of the play. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually almost go so far to say it's the empty space is more important than what's there, than what's not there. It's more impo- almost more important than what's there. I, I think that's a very healthy way of looking at it. So... Twelfth Night, a very tragic comedy. And I think, you know, when Twelfth Night is done brilliantly, as the audience, we sit there laughing. And with Twelfth Night, you can really laugh your guts out. I mean, it is so ripe for extraordinary physical comedy. But then there are moments where the play turns around and says to you, why were you laughing at that? Because people were in pain. Yes. 
That's what Shakespeare. That's what Shakespeare does. And just when he's, he, you got very close, he's going to get a great big thwack in the face. I love that. It's very painful. It's very funny, but it's also full of extraordinary joy, and it's quite, and it's, it has sort of whiffs of corruption and shame in it, but it also has tremendous hope for the future. So, Nick, Declan once played Orsino. If you were going to play a part in Twelfth Night, what would it be? I would end up being cast as Orsino. No, no, no. I tell you what I'd love to play as Malvolio. (laughs) So, upcoming future Cheek by Jail production with Declan playing Orsino and Nick playing Malvolio. I think this is a post-pandemic must. Well, I think that's where we're going to wrap up. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Not True But Useful. If you enjoyed hearing about Twelfth Night today, then take a look at the podcast notes to find links to images of Declan and Nick's productions in Cheek by Jell's archive. Join us next time as we get to grips with Hamlet. The theme music for this series was composed by Paddy Kaneen for Cheek by Jell's production of The Winter's Tale, with additional music in this episode by Alexander Gushev for Twelfth Night.